The AP Pro Football Podcast is presented by Cairn University. Hey, this is Russell Wilson. This is Joe Montana. This is Dak Prescott. Hey, this is Jason Kelsey, and you're listening to Rob Motti. Rob Motti. Rob Motti. Rob Motti. I am Rob Motti, and welcome to the AP Pro Football Podcast. We've got a football game tonight. Jacksonville Jaguars, Las Vegas Raiders Hall of Fame game. It'll be Doug Peterson's first as a head coach since he was fired in Philly after winning a Super Bowl. So his first game as a head coach in Jacksonville. I'm actually on my way to Canton to cover it as this episode drops. We have two guests This week, former Philadelphia Eagles running back Brian Westbrook, who was one of the best versatile do-everything players in the league. And now my former colleague, Barry Wilner, joins me after retiring following a 46-year career at the AP. It's been a busy week off the field in the NFL. Really, what else is new? First, Deshaun Watson got a six-game suspension from the disciplinary officer on Monday. Before the hearing in June, I was told the league didn't want to appeal if it was in the six to eight range, really closer to eight. But there was so much intense public pressure on the NFL to appeal, plus a lack of remorse by Watson and other important factors that the league did indeed on Wednesday file an appeal, which now gives Commissioner Roger Goodell or a person he designates the authority to impose a more severe penalty. And the league wants an indefinite suspension of at least one year, plus a substantial fine, and they do want Deshaun Watson to undergo treatment before he is reinstated. All of that I reported per source on Wednesday. Now, there's no timeline for a ruling, but according to the league's personal conduct policy, an appeal must be expedited. So this is a long way from over. And on Tuesday, the league suspended Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, fined him $1.5 million and took a first and third round pick away from Miami for tampering with Tom Brady and Sean Payton. The league cleared the Dolphins of tanking charges, though investigators corroborated Brian Flores' allegations that Ross offered $100,000 a game for losing, but they concluded it was meant as a joke. Sure it was. Located 25 minutes from Center City, Philadelphia, Cairn University is a biblical university centered on Christ and His Word. In any one of our 70-plus on-campus or online programs, you will receive an explicitly biblical and intentionally Christian education that integrates your faith and work. Be taught and mentored by invested faculty. Participate in a dynamic campus life and grow in your faith as you prepare for what's next. Learn more about our undergrad and graduate programs at cairn.edu. That's C-A-I-R-N.edu. Brian Westbrook played nine seasons in the NFL, eight with the Eagles, his last one in San Francisco. He finished with over 10,000 yards from scrimmage had 41 rushing touchdowns, caught 442 passes, 30 receiving touchdowns, also a dangerous punt returner. He had two scores. He was really one of the league's most versatile backs, a two-time Pro Bowl pick, a first-team All-Pro in 2007. Brian has worked in the media since retiring after the 2010 season. 
He is also a tech entrepreneur and horse farmer in Maryland, and he helped teach D.C. area teens about data science, the environment, farming, and other important technology at a free tech camp this summer in D.C. So we talked all about that, him playing for Andy Reid, Deuce Staley, and so much more. Fascinating conversation with B. West. Brian, welcome to the AP Pro Football Podcast. Good to catch up with you, man. I covered your entire career in Philly with the Eagles, and you had a lot of tremendous success there playing for Andy Reid. So before we get into everything you're doing, life after football, tell me a little bit about that time period. Because you you were there in a they didn't win a Super Bowl, but it was the, the glory days of, of the Eagles with Andy and Donovan and what they were able to do together. You're right. I mean, you talk about the 2000s for the city of Philadelphia and the Eagles franchise. We're talking about five NFC championship games, one Super Bowl appearance. You know, the conversation was never, will you make the playoffs? It was always about, you know, what seed, what position? Will we get the first week off of the playoffs? Will we get that bye? Um, so it was just a great time to be in Philadelphia. It's a lot of great players. We're talking about a couple Hall of Famers. There certainly could be a couple more Hall of Famers as, as time goes on. But we're talking about the glory days, the time where you go out there. And I remember the 2004, 2005 season, the year we went to the Super Bowl. There were so many games where we would play three quarters. So many games we would play two and a half quarters and then not play the last quarter, last quarter and a half because we were winning by so much. Those were great times in Philadelphia. I I wish I could go back and relive them uh, one more time. I was looking at some of those stats that you put up. For a guy coming out of Villanova, right, always considered, oh, he's undersized. And then you got a year where the, you were all pro, 2,000-plus yards, total yards. And you didn't play the final game of the season. You didn't play one of the games, probably the final game of the season because you guys are resting for positioning and all, and all that stuff. To be able to do what you did with all the doubts coming in, what, when you reflect back, what did that mean to you? Well, you know, the doubts, I think people doubt you because they're not sure people because they haven't seen it before. That's why people doubt you. And and for me, it's never been about who's doubting me. It's about as they doubt you, build that chip, build that thing inside of you that says, I don't care who doubts me. I know what I'm building inside. And that's the most important thing. That was always been the most important thing uh, for me. It's not about what the outside is saying. It's about what I believe, what I believe I can do, all the things that I'm sure of. And then I have to go out there and make sure that my talent, the things that I'm asked to do, matches up with my belief. That's the practice. That's the workouts. Those are the things uh, that make you successful. And so for me, I didn't mind the doubters. It, it never it never dawned on me to consider someone else's opinion of what I'm going to do because I had that ultimate control of that. My control was being able to work my butt off every single day in practice. My control was my ability to study my butt off in, in, in the classroom and then take it home and be the best most prepared player that I could possibly be. I had control of that. So no, no matter how many, how many people doubted me and how much they thought that you're going to only be this, you're only going to be that. I had control of that. I, I just remember back. This is one of those things that I've taken with me for a very long time. I think about it to today. Um, I went to the senior bowl, my senior year in college, which is a collection of the best, the seniors uh, across the nation, Florida state, Miami, Notre Dame, some of the big, biggest and best schools in the country. And so I go there, I'm practicing all week, little guy from Villanova, I'm working my butt off. And come the game day, uh, I'll never forget Stump Mitchell, who was our running back coach. He was a running back coach for Seattle at the time. He comes to me and said, listen, we're only going to play you on third downs and maybe on some special teams. That's it. Because, And I said, well, why coach? 
He said, because that's what the NFL scouts think you're going to be. You'll never be much more than that. Now, again, this is an all-star game. This is an opportunity to show scouts that you can do more. Wow. Even in that situation, I was doubting. Even in that situation, uh, I had a coach come to me and say, you're never going to be more than this. So that's all we're going to use you for. And again, that just builds that callus. That builds that chip on your shoulder to go out there and prove people wrong. And throughout my career, I used that chip to motivate myself uh, to be the player that I became. To be a guy who was such a, a dual threat, the ability to run for a thousand yards, the ability to catch 90 passes and, and get 800, 900,000 yards receiving, and then to block the way you were able to, how much pride did you take in being able to protect your quarterback when you got to do all these other things and everybody looks at the stats and the numbers, but that's a crucial element to being an all-purpose back, to being on the field for three downs. One of the things that Deuce Staley told me my rookie year, he said, I'm going to make this thing very, very simple for you. If you don't protect number five, our quarterback, Donovan McNabb, then you won't play. I don't care. I don't care what you can do running the football. We can always find somebody to run. We can always find someone to catch. But if you don't protect him, who is our franchise player, then you will never play here. I mean, you obviously know, you know, you followed Andy Reid and his career and how much he likes to throw the football. If you don't protect number five, you won't play. So for me, that meant I needed to understand defenses much better. I needed to understand our offense much better. I needed to understand our protection much better. And so I spent a lot of time with Ted Williams, our running back coach, Deuce Staley, Brian Mitchell, Dorsey Levins, who understood, all understood the offense to the point where <laughs> Brian Mitchell is one of my good friends. He said, your rookie year, you asked me so many doggone questions. I was just, I didn't know what else to do. He said, but I knew you were going to be good because you were concerned, you were interested, and you were curious, and you wanted to get that knowledge. So for me, it was all about how do I become a multi-purpose player that never has to be taken off the field? We see so many guys that are really great runners, but they have to come off the field on third down because they don't catch the ball well or they don't pass protect well. We see guys that pass protect well but aren't really good receivers or runners, and we kind of see all different other iterations of the same type of thing. To me, I wanted to be a, a player where when I was taken off the field, the team, the coaches, the fans felt a void because I wasn't on the field. And I hopefully, through over the course of my career, I was able to do that. How much did you enjoy B-West playing in Andy Reid's offense and then to see the success that even though he wasn't able to win the big one in Philly, he was able to get to their, uh, the mountaintop, hoist that Vince Lombardi trophy in Kansas City. How happy were you for him when he did that? Well, I was super happy for Coach. I was rooting for him. I've, I'm always – I'm an Andy Reid fan. Uh, I was been an Andy Reid fan before I came to Philly when I was still at Villanova. I was an Andy Reid fan, obviously, when he was a coach. And, you know, even in uh, Kansas City, I'm an Andy Reid fan. I believe he understands how to coach. He understands how to get the best out of his players. But even more important than that, he understands that what's important in life, real life, your family's important. Um, you know, making sure you're raising your kids the right way is important. Making sure that you keep your values in check and doing the right thing. All those things are super important to Andy Reid, which makes him a father figure, which makes him a great coach. And so when I had the opportunity to play for him, I didn't realize he was just such a great man at the time. I knew he was a great coach. But as I began to know him as a coach and as a man, um, it just continued to show me my thoughts were absolutely correct about him, that he's just going to be one of these people that I can learn from, one of these people that I can continue to build a relationship with. And as that relationship continued to flourish, my skill set, the things that he was able to use me in the offense to be able to do uh, were special. We, I knew that he was an innovator. I didn't realize that he was going to be able to use me and put me in space. And that was his, his whole goal. 
put you put Westbrook in space so that he can just do what he normally does. So he can make people miss so he can gain yards so that he can run outside inside zone. He can run traps. He can receive out of the backfield. We just need to put him in space. And if we do that, his skill set would take care of the rest. And really, that's what we did for a long time there in Philadelphia. Now, you played with Deuce early in your career. Deuce has become uh, – he's been an assistant coach in the NFL for a long time. There's been some disappointments. He wants to be a head coach. Obviously, there's only 32 jobs. Do you stay in touch with him? Do you talk about that? And what did you see in him that you think makes him that kind of leader of men, that guy who could really lead that locker room? Well, I do stay in touch with Deuce. We haven't talked probably for a couple months now. But, you know, just a great man, a great leader. Now, I remember I it was my rookie year, and Deuce was a guy maybe third or fourth year in. And I was, in my mind, I was going to take his spot. But there was nothing that I could ask Deuce that he wouldn't answer. Any question that I had, anything that I was doing wrong, he was always there to correct me, even though I was a guy competing for his same position. And really in the NFL, that's very, very rare. Usually people, men are like, listen, I'm not teaching you anything because your job is to take my job. And I don't want want that to happen. But Deuce was an open book. He showed me the right way, showed me how to be a professional, showed me how to study, showed me how to watch film, showed me how to look at plays differently, showed me how to read the safeties, right, Uh, defense. And so when you talk about a head coach, those are all the right qualities, being able to communicate to the young guys, being able to understand defenses and offenses and all the different things that it's going to take to be a head coach. He has all those qualities and he showed them 20 years ago when he was teaching me um, as a rookie. And so do I think he could be a head coach in the NFL? No doubt about it. Do I think he has the qualities and the ability to become a, a very successful head coach in the NFL? There's no doubt about it. Can he lead men? Absolutely. And so when we talk about knowing the X's and O's, there's no one in the league that's going to know the X's and O's of football more than Deuce Staley. But there's also no one that, can, that has the ability that lead men in the same way that Deuce, a guy that has played the game, has that type of ability. And so he, he will get his opportunity. And I know when he gets that opportunity, he will make the most of it. That's what it's all about. He's just got to get that opportunity at some point, and, and you can only hope. But he, he's uh, he's built such a, a strong reputation. Now, Deuce went into coaching after his career. You've got so many different interests, B. West, and uh, you're a tech entrepreneur. I'm talking to you in, in your horse farm uh, in Maryland. Tell me how you got involved. Let's start with the horses and being a farmer and having all of that. How did you even get that interest? When did you get excited about doing that? You know, Rob, it's weird. You know, back when I was playing, this was almost the middle of my career, 2005. I uh, came down to Maryland. We had a bye week. I went in to visit one of my good friends who owned a dog kennel at the time. He said, listen, let's go next door and ride horses with my neighbor. I was like, okay. You know, I've ridden horses on the beach and those types of things before. Um, so I, I think I can do it. And so we get over there and they say, Hey, listen, if you want to, we're going to take this horse who's been in the barn all day long. Um, if you want to go left, do this, you want to go right, do that. And if you want to stop, pull back. That was my 10 second introduction to horses. And so they throw me up on this horse and this horse just takes off 300 yards in a full sprint. None of the instructions that they gave me, I can remember none of them I can do. And finally the horse gets to the wood line and it just stops. And at this point, I'm just like in shock because I don't know what the heck I'm doing. That's the big problem. And so the guys come over. They say, listen, you did a great job of staying on by the grace of God. And then we went on the two-hour trail ride. And because football is so stressful, because football is so, what have you done for me lately? You know, you're, you're only as good as your last game. This was a peaceful experience 
for two hours where I was away from the world. I'm just in nature, me and this animal, um, away from uh, the real world and just in nature. And after that ride, I called my realtor was like, I, I want to buy a horse farm. And now that now, Rob, I have to tell you, that's not the, that's not the right way to do things because I didn't know anything about horses. I just I've gone on a two hour trail ride. I didn't know anything about the upkeep, about the farms. I didn't know anything. Um, fortunately, my, my agent found a horse farm for me. Um, and really, for the last 17 years, it's been a labor of love. Really, that first year. Right. So after I bought it, the owner stayed on. And he taught me everything. So I would be here from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m learning how to take care of the horses, how to clean stalls, how to take care of the tractors, how to ride the tractors, how to put up fences, all the different things that it takes to understand horses in the horse business. He was able to teach me, but it was an awful lot of hard work. And this is the middle of my career. So I was juggling, working out and doing all the things for football, but also being here at the farm so that I can understand this business. And I was just blessed to be able to find the right people to help me along the way. And because of that, I've become successful at, at doing what I love, which is taking care of the horses. How many horses do you have out there on the farm? We have uh, 14 regular sized horses. We have a couple babies as well. Then we have two little mini ponies, which are about uh, big dog size. And so they, they're really, really cute. I bought them for my kids. Uh, so they, my kids can ride them and things like that. So it's, we have about 14 to 16 horses here right now um, that we enjoy. We have a couple babies. And so you know, one of the things that we do, I don't know if you can see my shirt here, it says Westbrook Rainers. We yeah. breed reining horses as well. And so we have a few brood mares that we that we impregnate and then we have the babies and we train them up so that they can be show horses in the reining discipline as well. And so we, we have fun with that. We enjoy it. But this is a great place for my family to come and enjoy the pond, uh, my family to come and enjoy the horses. I literally watched during COVID, my wife and my daughter fall in love with riding lessons and riding the horses on the trail. And so the love that I found back in 2005 about being around horses, being in this environment with nature, I watch with my eyes, my oldest daughter and my wife do and fall in love during that time period. And it was a thing of beauty for us. Now it's just horses there, right? You don't have any goats, any sheep, any, you have any, anything, cows, any other animals? Ironically enough, we just have just horses now. Uh, we had chickens, which just okay. we weren't able to control very well. We had goats as well. Now, the one thing about goats is that you can put goats, goats in a fence, and I guarantee you, you leave them there, they will not be in that fence when they come back. And so we, we had goats, goats eating our roses, our flowers, things like that outside of the fence way too often. So we they had to go. It was just too much work trying to wrangle them up and keep them inside of a fence. Now, tell me a little bit about your involvement with the STEAM camp. The Open Data Science, Technology, Engineering, Agriculture, and Math Camp. It's a free program in the D.C. area for, for teenagers, and, and I know you were involved in that. Tell me a little bit about what you were doing. Well, Rob, like I mentioned, we operated um, our horse farm for about uh, 15, well, 12 years mm -hmm. as a boarding facility, as a place where if you didn't have a place to keep your horse at your home, you would bring it to us and we would take care of it. In about 2017, my wife and I said, listen, we have a bigger calling on our life. We have more that we want to do, more people that we want to help. And so we said, OK, we're going to kick all the borders out and we're going to start a foundation. And our foundation's goal is to empower our youth, teach them what success really is, teach them the, that, that there are so many pathways and avenues that you need to be able to access to be successful. We need to show them those pathways. We also need to show them that there's different ways 
to be successful. We, I say our kids have blinders on until we take those blinders off and they can understand what our world is really about. That's our goal. That's what the purpose of our, our foundation is, empower them and show them the right way. Part of our foundation, of course, is going to be about horses, showing about horsemanship, under under underserved youth about horsemanship, show them about the different things that go on with horses and farms and things like that. Another part of our foundation is understanding that 60% of kids will go to college. We want to take those kids and say, we want to give them data analytics skills. We want to give them financial literacy skills. We want to give them resume building skills amongst so many other things. We want to take those kids and push them as far as we possibly can so they can reach those avenues and pathways to success. We also understand that 40% of kids will not go to college. So we want to give them also avenues and pathways to success as well. So we're teaching them vocational skills. We're teaching them how to be carpenters, how to be mechanics, how to be electricians. We're trying to teach them also how to be construction workers. One of the things that we've seen over across the country is that there hasn't been a lot of people that want to be in construction. And so when you think about construction work over the next 20 to 30 years, there's just not going to be enough construction workers as our nation continues to grow. We need people to work there. And so we have a program in Philly that is designed to get people into the construction workforce, teaching them skills while paying them, and also put them in a construction workforce where they're going to get paid great wages as well as have great benefits. So we're trying to create pathways for success for our children. And that's what kind of brought us to the Data Steam Camp. We were looking for different avenues to educate our kids. And I met Miss Joyce Hunter, who is a Villanova grad. She was a track athlete at Villanova years ago and just a beautiful person. And as we talked about her vision and what she was been doing with her data at Atlantic analytic camps, I started to develop the idea that, hey, we can be a big part of this. And how can we help this? Over the course of time, I saw that there are so many companies there are so many businesses that are looking for diversity, a diversity of people that understand data and how to analyze it. And now we have the ability to help them and through these camps. And so, number one, we develop an athletic data analytics camp. And Rob, you know, just like anyone else, that if you look at sports, that if they're not hiring old football players anymore, yeah. they're hiring people from MIT and Harvard and Yale because they can take the data the snapshot of all the information that the NFL, the NBA, MLB are collecting, they can analyze it and spit it back out to their coaches, spit it, spit it back out to their scouts so they can make better decisions on the field and off the field as well. That's what we want to teach our kids. We want to teach our kids that if you can just analyze data, then you can be successful in so many different pathways. We had a young lady, young lady named Dinah Wynn, excuse me, Dia Wynn, that came and spoke to us from Amazon Web Services. She's worked for Amazon for two years. She's visited 14 different countries in two years, just understanding Amazon. That's what we want to teach our kids. You have the access and ability to experience everything in life by being able to understand data. And so we also have the agricultural data analytics camp. And for us, that's very, very helpful for us at the, at the farm because our business, quite honestly, we're raising the horses. But in order to raise the horses, we have to be able to raise grass. And so this agricultural camp has shown us where's the best spots to plant grass. Where do we where are we going to get the best uh, production of our fields and things like that? All the things that we need to know, um, we've been able to understand and be able to gain that knowledge through data, through being able to analyze it. And that's the goal for us and our kids and our foundation. We want to make sure that our kids have these pathways and access to these pathways so they can be successful. And we hopefully we provided some of those pathways for them.
That's tremendous, man. I didn't even realize that you were doing all of that, B. West. And I, I've seen, I watched your career. I see you in the media afterwards. But to just sit down and talk about and see the passion, man, that you have for this. How can people get more information about the foundation? Yeah, please feel free to go to datasteamcamp.com, excuse me, .org, anytime that you want to. And if you would like to get more information about our foundation, uh, go to info at brianwestfordfoundation.com. We have all the information there. You can email us anytime at those same addresses. We just want to make sure that people understand that, listen, our kids are our most important asset. We want to we want to just continue to input into them, give them all the things that they need so that they can be successful. That's our goal. Um, and we've had so many people that are sponsoring us, so many people that are willing to donate money so that we can get more kids into our program so that our children can be successful. And we're certainly appreciative of that. You know, one of the other people, groups that have helped uh, all of our success, especially here with the agricultural camp, is that we had the USDA, we had the Forest Service, as well as Esri come out and say, hey, USDA said, let's, let's take a look at snapshot of your fields. Let's use our drones with Esri, with the Forest Service. Let's look around at what your trees are doing. Are your trees being helpful? How much how much uh, carbon monoxide are they collecting? How are our trees helping our environment? We go up with the drones. We say, okay, let's analyze your fields. So we've had so much support from USDA, Esri, as well as uh, the Forest Service to help our kids understand that data and help them see other avenues, other opportunities for them to gain employment by being able to analyze that data. It's just been a great thing for us and our students, and we're certainly grateful as well. Yeah, that's really cool. I'd love to visit that farm. I wish I knew when I was up north last week, I, I would have brought the girls and had them go on some pony rides. <laughs> you have enough horses for everyone. You still can bring them. It's just a, a short flight away. We can You can bring them up here, especially uh, when it gets a little bit too warm down there in Florida. Uh, no doubt. So tell me this, are you still getting up at 6 a.m. in the morning working on the farm or do you, do you have some help? Like what's going on there with that? Well, my dad helps me an awful lot. Um, you know, he, he does a lot of the work, to be honest, which I, I do some of it. But he does a lot more than, than than I do. He continues to keep the horse and the farms, uh, the, the farm looking really, really well. I still am getting up at six. I'm still here at the farm. We fed the horses this morning. We're training the little ones, the young ones. And so we have a, a day's worth of work to do. Uh, you know, Rob, I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you. I'm also uh, this this month, uh, you know, we're we're I, I wrote a book myself and Leslie Van Arsdale uh, from Philly. We wrote a book called The Mouse That Played Football. And it's really my story about me going to Villanova, me being in high school and then me making it to the NFL. Um, it's, a, it's a great book of overcoming those doubts. Like I talked about with Stump Mitchell and, and those coaches that thought that you were only good enough to do this. And just think about it. I mean, when you live this life in just any life, people are going to doubt you. Mm-hmm. People are going to be able to, to say you're not good enough. You're not going to do enough. And that's what the book is all about. It's a children's book. And it's all about empowering our children, all about showing our kids that don't let anyone doubt you. Don't let anyone say that you can't do it. Go out there and prove those people wrong. And so that book, that book is actually out right now on pre-order on Amazon. Um, Leslie has been great to work with. Uh, we're super excited about the book, and we're having a, a great event August 4th at 12 noon at the Free Library of Philadelphia. We're having a book signing. We're going to be reading some of the book at that point as well. Um, I, I, I ask everyone to come out and certainly share in our excitement as well as we go, go about reading these books to our kids and making sure that our kids understand that, listen, you're only limited by your mind and what you're willing to work for, and that's what it's all about. Listen, right. B. West, I, I really appreciate your time. 
sharing a little bit about what you're doing. I wish you a ton of blessings. And uh, I'm serious about that. Coming up there, coming to the farm, bringing the girls. They always want to ride some ponies. We don't have too many. We don't have any horses down here in, in Florida. It's a little too hot for them. So I'll hit you up for that. Anytime, brother. Thanks so much, Rob. I appreciate you. Thank you. The AP Pro Football Podcast is presented by Cairn University. Barry Wilner covered the NFL for AP since 1985 until he retired last month. He's a pro football Hall of Fame voter. He's been a friend, a mentor. He's one of the ultimate pros in this business. The level of respect that Barry earned over his 46-year career at AP was immense. It was tremendous. The NFL honored him at the league office this year. Commissioner Roger Goodell was there to show his appreciation Many of Barry's colleagues, AP voters, Rich Gannon, Peter King, Bob Glauber, Jared Bell, several more sent congratulations for a video that I put together. I talked to Barry about how the NFL has changed since he started his career and the future of the league and so much more. Here's that conversation. Barry, welcome to the AP Pro Football Podcast. Uh, I've been wanting to get you on now that you are officially retired from the AP after 46 years. You've covered the NFL since 85. So you've kind of left me all alone out here, but uh, (laughs) I I do want to congratulate you on a tremendous career. And as I said in that video that we put together, really appreciated first your friendship and just being a mentor for everything that you've meant for me over the course of my career. So before we even get into any conversation, thank you for that, Barry. Oh, that's been my pleasure, Rob. And, you know, when I see people who are so dedicated like you are, it, it made my job easier and it makes me feel very comfortable to have retired and left everything in your hands. As we look back over the course of your career, man, a lot has changed, obviously, in the end. A lot has changed in the world. The change happens. But when, when you think about the NFL and maybe the first Super Bowl, the, first of all, how many Super Bowls did you cover? I covered everyone since the 1986 championship game, uh, but I did not go to the one during the pandemic when the Buccaneers won at home. Okay. So everyone's 86, that was the Bears, Patriots? No, the 86 season. So that was the Giants and the Broncos. 86 season. So see, we've always, there's the season and then the Super Bowl. And yeah. I, I'm going to, I guess I'm going to have to send out the uh, the style email that you always send out before the season. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm just going to copy and paste yours. But as we look back on, you know, all, all the changes in the NFL, what stands out to you? Like the, the biggest change, the biggest difference in the league now? I think there are two, Rob. One is the media attention. Back in 85, all the media, uh, well, I'm sorry, in 86 uh, and January of 87, all the media stayed in one hotel. Now you need almost an entire city worth of hotels just for the media. It's the thousands instead of in the hundreds. And and the attention that this league gets is just phenomenal. And then the other thing I would say is the um, uh, fact that every team makes so much money. Back in, in the mid-80s, there were teams that didn't make money in this league, partly because they weren't run that well, partly because they maybe didn't have great stadiums. But now... It's just a cash cow. And that's why guys like David Tepper, one of the richest men in the world, buys Carolina. It's why the Walmart people buy Denver. 
And the next team that comes up for sale, the numbers will be astronomical when it gets sold. It's just no sport compares to it uh, in America. And uh, the values of the teams we just saw today, the value of the Cowboys, nobody approaches that. Who were, when you look back, who were some of the the coaches, the players, the personalities, maybe front office executives, whoever it may be, that you really enjoyed covering the most, Barry? Rob, I covered for 18 years the Jets, and that was not always the easiest thing to do. Um, but there were some people with the Jets that I really appreciated. Curtis Martin is my favorite player that I ever dealt with, one of the classiest guys I've ever met. And um, quite a few of us uh, took his um, charge into the uh, Hall of Fame. We, I'm on the Hall of Fame committee, and um, Marshall Falk went in before he did um, – which was warranted, but uh, Curtis Martin was clearly a Hall of Famer, and we were very glad to get him in. Um, the uh, the co- the coaches, I mean, I had issues with some um, and others. <laughs> I really appreciated Pete Carroll. I would say was the one who was the most human, <laughs> if that's a fair way to put it. Uh, Tony Dungy, of course, uh, one of the Tony Dungy was a trailblazer, a real pioneer, still is and one of the most important voices in all sports. So I really got to appreciate him. Um, and then, you know, the one thing, and Rob, you've discovered this from covering the Eagles and the league. The one place that I really liked to go in the locker room was wherever the offensive linemen sat and just to ch- chat with them. Those are the guys who have the most insight into the game. They're the most cooperative and they don't get a lot of attention from the media. So they always would like to talk to us. That's for sure. And I think that's why we see a lot of the former offensive linemen, Barry, do a great job in the media afterwards, whether it's analysis, radio, TV, whatever it may be. Now, I'm sure you had so many wonderful moments, great moments. Is there something, a favorite, one moment that you look back on your career, maybe a game, maybe an event, maybe just an interaction with somebody? Is there? Can you narrow it down to or just pick one? Probably not. I can say my favorite event is uh, coming up this week, the induction at the Hall of Fame. Uh, I love going to those. I love the speeches, the camaraderie, the way the uh, players come back who are in the Hall of Fame, the gold jackets, and honor uh, guys joining in. So those are very special moments. The game I will most remember, there are two of those, Rob. The uh, comeback by the Buffalo Bills in the playoffs against the Houston Oilers. When I was working on one of those old Radio Shack um, computers, uh, not even a laptop. You couldn't call it that. And it only had two screens. And you had to close one screen to go to the other screen. And I was writing one story on one screen with the Bills making this comeback and the other story on the other screen with the Oilers holding on. And I'll never forget what that was like. And then the game that um, is most memorable to me has to be the 2000. Eight Super Bowl when the Giants beat the undefeated Patriots and um, the look uh, in the um, press box on the faces of so many journalists was supposed to be objective, right? But <laughs> I would say 95% of us were rooting for the Giants in that game, partly because that was the year the uh, Patriots had gotten caught cheating with the uh, Spygate scandal, uh, and partly because it was just such a um, a gutsy win by the Giants. And partly because of Bill Belichick now, Barry. You don't hold back. It's okay. Not holding back. Uh, <laughs> if there's one person in the NFL that I 
always um, had some disdain for, and I admit he's been a great coach and a tremendously successful coach, it's Belichick. And um, I've always said that the success of the Patriots was 80% Brady. And uh, I know you don't agree with that, uh, but there are a lot of people who do. I do agree with that. I, I totally, I totally agree with that. I think we saw that here in Tampa with Brady and what he was able to do. So listen, we're talking on a day that I probably spent 15 hours covering Deshaun Watson and this never ending saga. And after we do this, I'll go back and do some more Deshaun Watson. So uh, you bailed at the right time, man, but it, it's easily my least favorite part about covering the NFL. When, when I'm reading through um, a report from a disciplinary officer mentioning sexual misconduct and private part, and you know, like this is not what I signed up for NFL coverage for. What is what? What did you hate the most about covering anything, or like the least? Well, that that was clearly what I liked the least. I think all of us who cover the league mm-hmm. uh, were disappointed when we had to cover stories like that. Going back to Ray Rice, and even before that. Um, so that that's a big part of the um, um, disappointment, I guess, that you would have in such a great job because it is a great job. The other thing, Rob, is um, how the NFL meetings now when the owners meet, how uh, we've been uh, kind of sheltered away from the owners. It used to be you could chat with an owner. You'd have 10, 15 minutes. You could catch him in the lobby or in one of the by one of the conference rooms and just chat about stuff, not necessarily to write about it, but to be informed. And that's disappeared. Um, And I think the owners are to blame for that. I think the owners very much wanted that eliminated. There are certain owners who will still come out and talk all the time. um, Jim Irsay uh, with the Colts is really good about doing that. I have a very good relationship with Art Rooney in Pittsburgh. Uh, Jeff Lurie is very good at that from the Eagles, John Mara with the Giants, but there's not a lot of them. We're heading into this week and I, I'm going to see you at the Hall of Fame and that process of, of voting for the Hall of Fame. And I should let everybody know we have in the past that you're a pro football Hall of Fame voter. It is a, a, a difficult task because you're you're charged with having to. I mean, these guys their entire career, this is this is the ultimate in individual accomplishments. Obviously, everybody talks about winning Super Bowls. But how do you set about voting, determining, deciding, and making sure that you're taking, and I'm sure all those voters take it as seriously as they do, and then it culminates in, in what we're about to enjoy over the next four or five days? That is the most um, enlightening uh, event I go to every year is the meeting. Oh, we do it now on Zoom. Uh, the meeting when we vote, when we select who's going to go in to the hall for the next year. And uh, everyone, to say everyone does their homework is such an understatement because um, the dedication that everyone has toward presenting candidates and people who second or third those candidates with support is phenomenal. And I'll give you an example of um, how I would do it. And I still do it. We uh, have 15 modern player candidates uh, when we get into that room. Before I go in, I've done my research and I rank them one through 15. And then I listen to all the presentations. And I present for some people too. Uh, Most recently, I presented um, 
uh, as the second person for Zach Thomas, who I think belongs in the Hall of Fame. And then uh, I'll adjust mine as we move along, and then we reduce from 15 to 10, and then 10 to 5. And uh, one year, I had Aeneas Williams ranked 13th out of my 15 when we went into the room. And the presentations were so convincing that I got to see that Aeneas Williams was really Deion Sanders who could tackle in many ways, could play both cornerback and safety, was a tremendous leader. He's, I think he's now um, a pastor. He is. Um, he is. Mm-hmm. And probably been a guest on your, on your podcast. Yeah. Uh, and when, when we voted, Aeneas Williams is number three on my list, and he got in. Uh, so that uh, that's the way the process goes. And it you feel bad for the guys who don't get in. Mm-hmm. Tony Baselli's going in this year. He had to wait quite a long time. But we had Kevin Mawai ahead of him. We had Steve Hutchinson ahead of him. We had so many good uh, – Alan Fanica, so many good offensive linemen. And Baselli, unfortunately, had to wait his turn. Um, but it, it, the process is done just right. Um, I think you voted for baseball. Um, yep. Still, still do till they take it away. So, you know, that's not nearly the kind of process that we have for football. And I think football yeah. works. Yeah, I, I don't like the process. And I've been critical of the baseball process. And, and as much as I appreciate being a voter and consider it a privilege, I don't think I should vote. I think they should do something similar to what the NFL well, Pro Football Hall of Fame does, because I, I think that is a, a better system. Now, Barry, of course, the NFL, is as you and I are talking, we know this, it is the king of American sports. As you look at the future of the league, do you see challenges that the league, like, do you see anything that may knock the NFL off this pedestal it's on? I, I don't. I think the issue, the concussion issue will always be a, a, a situation they must deal with and be proactive on, you know, the, the, um, uh, the brain injuries. Um, there must be a way of, hopefully there's a way of detecting them before people die. I think that is going to remain a very big issue. Um, they need to make sure the game remains strong on the grassroots and is very well coached. And yes, the NFL needs to be involved in that with USA football to make sure that the stepping stones are in place and they're uh, handled correctly. Uh, I worry about where the college game is headed with the, um, the NILs and with the free movement that we're seeing that basically players are free agents now. And I think that could affect the stream of players coming into the NFL I don't think the NFL needs to worry about the other leagues that are out there. Um, And they certainly don't need to worry about um, television ratings. Uh, I was reading today that I forget the number, but it was almost like 75 out of the top 85 programs last year on, on broadcast TV were NFL related. So that will not be a problem. And, you know, I'm going to give a little kudos here to Roger Goodell. Uh, when he decides to retire, and I don't think he's close to doing it, even though there's been reports that this would be his last contract, they need to find the right guy to replace him because I think he's been a fabulous commissioner. Barry, as, as you uh, embark on the next chapter of your <laughs> of your journey, and I, I know you're not done writing and you're not done doing what you do best, the media landscape has changed over the course of the past decade, let alone from when you started. What is the, I I often get 
a lot, young journalists reaching out to me and, and I try and help them as best as I can. But man, someone like yourself, who's who's done it for so long, you're a professor as well. What is some of the best advice that you can give a young journalist in this day and age? Be right. Don't necessarily be first. That's very important. Remember that social media has no filter. So things out on social media may not be correct. Rob, you and I have chased so many stories over the last few years that weren't accurate um, because they were out there and they were getting a lot of uh, a lot of play. Uh, and that's an issue. I would tell any young journalist that the, the true tenets of uh, journalism are to be objective, to be fair and to always be accurate. And when you lose sight of any of that and Mostly that happens on television and um, radio and now on websites, not so much in print. Um, you lose your journalistic um, uh, chops, really. And that's things that any young journalist must uh, be aware of. And the best way the best way to learn is to reach out to people like you, Rob, to reach out to people who are in the business, have done it for a while and have learned from people like myself. And let that chain keep going. Let that train keep rolling. Absolutely. I, I think that's the least that we can do is, is just kind of give back to, to the next generation. And um, I've always appreciated you being there. All of the advice, all of the, the mentorship. Barry, as we wrap up now, uh, the league is something very beautiful, very special, very well-deserved. Uh, some of your colleagues, some of the voters uh, for the AP Awards, we put together this nice video when you're obviously a very well-respected journalist and, and had made so many friends and among the colleagues and the peers. How did that make you feel, man? When you, when you see that, when, when people reach out to you, when the league does goes out of its way to do it, Roger Goodell's handing you a game ball. What What is that like? That was one of the most special things anyone's ever done for me was a uh, retirement party surprise party that the NFL uh, did for me and uh, my family being there. And they totally, some reporter I am, Rob, I had no clue at all that this was going to happen. <laughs> and then um, the, the fact that my three grandchildren kept it a secret, including one of my grandkids knew it for almost seven weeks. The other ones didn't know it for quite as long and kept it a secret. That was amazing. Um, and then just, um, it left me speechless, and you can't imagine me speechless, I'm sure. Uh, but it was uh, that was incredible. And, and just the, the support that I've gotten from people and hearing from them, uh, it makes me feel like what I've done through the years was worthwhile. Um, it was very rewarding. There's no question about it. And uh, I also think that... Um, you know, people look sometimes at the job as a burden, but like you used the word before, I look at the job that I had and I think the job you do as a privilege. Very, very well said. And the fact that your grandkids were able to keep that a secret, man, that's, that's extremely. Could your daughters do it? Uh, one of them, definitely not. One of them, maybe one of them, most definitely not. She'd be daddy, daddy, <laughs> this is going to happen. But hey, listen, I have uh, appreciated everything about working with you since uh, day one, Barry. And, and I look forward to, uh, I, I know you're not going to be with the AP any longer, but uh, I look forward to talking to you. We're texting and seeing you at the Hall of Fame and 
and everything else. And, and, and uh, I wish you a ton of uh, blessings in, in, in this next chapter of your journey. Thanks for having and Thanks for doing this. Located 25 minutes from Center City, Philadelphia, Cairn University is a biblical university centered on Christ and His Word. In any one of our 70-plus on-campus or online programs, you will receive an explicitly biblical and intentionally Christian education that integrates your faith and work. Be taught and mentored by invested faculty. Participate in a dynamic campus life and grow in your faith as you prepare for what's next. Learn more about our undergrad and graduate programs at cairn.edu. That's C-A-I-R-N edu. Time for some final thoughts. I don't get excited about preseason football, but after spending nearly every waking hour covering Deshaun Watson this week and for several months, I can't wait to see Raiders-Jaguars in the Hall of Fame game. I don't care if it's all backups. I don't care if it's third-string guy. I don't care who's playing out there. It's a football game, and I'll be watching that for a couple hours instead of dealing with Deshaun Watson. I'm pleading with players, NFL players across the league, please, please stay the heck out of trouble. That's it for this week. Thank you to Brian Westbrook and Barry Wilner, and thank you for listening. Please be sure to download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, check out my colleague, Ralph Russo, and his AP Top 25 college football podcast. Until next week, I'm Rob Motti reminding you, make a difference. Be a blessing. The AP Pro Football Podcast is presented by Cairn University.